Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Well, Luke, thanks again, man, so much for uh, coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you this afternoon. Like I told you just a second ago before we started recording, I came across your work on TikTok and you were the first person that really um, talked about hypnosis in a way that wasn't like mystical or kind of like cloudy and foggy because before coming across your work, the only thing I knew about hypnosis or the only idea or image I had was like the person swinging the stopwatch and saying you're getting sleepy and then they snap their fingers and you wake up barking like a dog or something like that. Why do you think that's what most of us think of when we hear the word hypnosis? Well, first off, thanks for having me on, on your show. I appreciate yeah. this chance to kind of explain hypnosis in a way that makes a lot more sense than a stopwatch putting people to sleep. Yeah. So the stereotypes of hypnotism come partly from the Hollywood depiction. So Hollywood does not portray lawyers as they actually work. The yeah. legal work that lawyers do is a lot more boring than what you yeah. see on television. They don't portray physicians doing the paperwork that comprises a large part of their days. And for hypnotherapists, they, they, they kind of you know, use the visually interesting bits of hypnosis history that might not represent what actually happens in a hypnosis office like, like mine. Mm -hmm. And if we kind of put a camera on a session that I do, it's not that exciting. The, the, the client looks like they're asleep. I am going to be talking to them. And most of the 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 change most of what's happening happens within the client's inner subjective world so devices like the pocket watch and the spiral and looking at a candle flame these kinds of visual devices they present well on screen because you have to look at something but um when i have every tool at my disposal i'm, I'm not using what are termed eye fixation inductions. So the, the, the induction is kind of the, the way that we get 
people into hypnosis. So in other words, we get them tuned into their inner worlds. We get them to suspend disbelief. We get them um, tuned out of the outer world and other people's concerns and other people's demands upon them so that they're deeply immersed in their inner worlds. So th that process is, is called an induction. Um, I fixation inductions are um, based on the premise that if someone is staring at something, anything, so it could be a candle flame, it, it could be a spiral, it could be a pocket watch, it could be a crystal, then they, 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 they start to kind of space out. And that spacing out is um, bringing their attention away from the many, many things they could think about and putting it on one specific thing. And if the, if the hypnotist is speaking at the same time, then the, the words that the hypnotist speaks will then have a bigger impact because the client's focused on one thing and not a thousand different things as our minds tend to do. So it's a visual device. Um, but when I have every tool at my disposal, I prefer to use words because words convey a lot more than, let's say, a, a swinging pocket watch. So I can verbally guide people into their inner worlds and through their inner worlds to mm. kind of arrive at emotional states or, or thoughts that um, might benefit them. It's very interesting you say that, too, because I watched one of your videos with one of your clients from years ago. You were doing a like a... I don't know if you can call it a demo hypnosis session, kind of just to show what exactly happens during the session. And I was very surprised to see it was just you sitting next to this woman. She was in a very comfortable chair in a relaxed state. And you were literally just talking to her, but in a specific way. And she kind of fell into this hypnosis. So for anybody, including myself, who doesn't truly understand what it is, how would you define hypnosis? What is actually happening when a person is in a state of hypnosis? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you a technical definition, which I usually teach students of hypnosis, and then I'll give you more of a colloquial um, layperson's definition. So the technical definition is that it's a suspension of critical analytical thought and wholehearted acceptance of one idea. And th th those two parts go hand in hand. So for, for one to wholeheartedly accept an idea, they have to suspend judgment. They, they have to suspend their, their critical analytical thought to, to mm -hmm. some degree. So um, the, the lay person's definition, the, the way I often explain it to clients, is that if you feel like you're a kid sitting at the feet of your favorite storyteller and the storyteller is kind of teaching you things about life things about you things about your future things about your potential then you're going to be immersed not because there's any coercion involved and not because i've kind of made anyone do anything but if i speak compellingly enough then people tend to want to focus and listen to what i'm saying to the exclusion of the thousand other thoughts that they could have. Hmm. So th th that's what it's going to feel like. Now, I, I read in your book that you also refer to it as like a heightened state of suggestibility. Yes. So th th there, th there are numerous ways we could take the subjective feeling of hypnosis and then put it through the narrow bandwidth channel of words. So it's kind of like poets have used many different words to describe love or happiness. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, each poet will take their own feeling and they'll put it into their own words. Um, but there is no canonical definitive set of words that defines the, the, mm. the subjective feeling that we call love. And different theorists have different definitions of hypnosis, where we're trying to take this feeling, right, mm. and put it through the low resolution, low bandwidth um, channel of, of just mere words. Interesting. And so another perspective on hypnosis is that it's a state of heightened suggestibility. But that's not incompatible with what I said earlier. Mm -hmm. So earlier I said that when one is wholeheartedly focused on one thing to the exclusion of all the other thoughts, that they can accept what the hypnotist is saying more readily. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's another way to say that the client's in a state of heightened suggestibility. Makes perfect sense, man. But I'm curious to know how one learns to use the proper words to say things in a particular way that increases the chance this person gets, I think you said it was inducted into yes. hypnosis, and then they get yes. into the state of hypnosis, and they're willing to accept these ideas. Where did you learn or how did you learn to use your words effectively? Because I imagine every word you're choosing thoughtfully and carefully, right? Yeah, well, all words are going to make some kind of impact, because very few words make a perfectly neutral impact, right? And often the ways we, we speak to ourselves, uh, they're going to make it detrimental impact. So if we're very self-critical, it's going to make a, detriment, a detrimental impact. If we're self-appreciative and self-loving, we make a positive impact on ourselves. So um, I would say that my understanding of how words make an impact predates my formal mm. training in hypnosis. Um, I, I actually learned English as a second language. I, I moved to Canada when, when I was three years old, almost four. Um, so I was kind of immersed in in, um, in 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 the public school system, trying to fit in. And um, I ended up loving books. I ended up um, reading above my grade level by by grade five, grade six. Mm -hmm. um, I loved reading books, escaping to different fantasy worlds, and essentially letting authors affect my state of mind, letting authors affect my thought processes, letting authors through the written word affect how I might even see myself or how I might see my own challenges. And then I ended up becoming an English major in, in university. So I, I furthered my love of words and, and books. Um, after university, English majors famously don't have any uh, clear-cut <laughs> career path. Yeah. So hypnotherapy was something I was interested in, um, perhaps from around the age of 14 or 15. Um, during my excursions to the public library, um, I, I read books about uh, Buddhism and meditation and mm. Zen and altered states of consciousness and books about hypnosis were in there. Mm. I wasn't a really happy kid, as you read in my bio. I, I moved around a lot as a kid. Yeah. So I kind of inadvertently learned that I had to depend upon myself for stability and that, you know, friends disappear within a few years through no choice of my own. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't a happy kid. Um, and I, I kind of found refuge in books. I, I, I found refuge in stories of people who may have lived through much harsher times and yet were able to keep their heads up. 
Um, so after university, I took a certification in hypnotherapy. So it's more like fitness training or yoga instruction than it is like a dentistry or medicine or psychology. Mm. The, the state of the profession right now. So I, I, could, I see Could you that, expound on that a little bit? What do you mean by yes. that? So um, every profession starts unregulated. And then if it gains enough of a critical mass, then legislators take action and then they regulate the profession. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that the doctors were butchers and they didn't know what they were doing and they would bleed people or they, they, they were barbers, right? So then after a while, some doctors said, well, we can do better than this. Let's professionalize. And now doctors, after hundreds of years, are considered to be a very legitimate, respectable profession. Okay. So, um, so uh, an occupation like yoga instructor or fitness trainer, it's not at the point where legislators say, hey, we have to limit who can do this. Mm -hmm. And hypnotherapy is in that stage where I call it, again, an emerging profession because I, I think that it has a bright future. Um, but right now, it's not among the regulated professions. It just hasn't gained enough stature or critical mass that the people are clamoring for this to be regulated or that mm -hmm. legislators feel like they have to step in to regulate the practice. So as a new hypnosis student, I had multiple organizations to potentially be certified under. It's not like if you're going to be a doctor, there's a very clear-cut career path. For hypnotherapists, kind of like yoga instructors, kind of like fitness trainers, you can find weekend certifications or you could read a book and say that you're a hypnotherapist, mm -hmm. or you could make a multi-month or a multi-year study out of the practice. Mm -hmm. So I got a certification from one of the bigger organizations called the National Guild of, Hyp of Hypnotists back in mm -hmm. 2004. I sat on it for a few years, and it was a meditation course I took in 2006 that got me to take the prospect of a career in hypnotherapy seriously. When I kind of put aside my parents' demands upon me, when I put aside a lot of fears and doubts and worries I had in my early 20s, and I kind of try to look forward into my future to see what I might be good at and what I might succeed in and what I might enjoy. Hypnotherapy was right in the intersection, in the middle of that Venn diagram. Mm. So um, two weeks after I came back from 10 days of silent meditation, I rented out my first office down the street, um, and it just took off from there. Most of what I do these days, so most of what you hear me talk about uh, in my TikTok videos or my YouTube videos or um, even today, it, um, it doesn't just come from books I read or seminars and workshops I'd taken or the certification I got. Um, in my first few years, that's how I learned. But over the past few years, I'm learning a lot more from my own clients. And I think at some point in anyone's career, this has to happen where, you know, other people's work can only take you so far. And yeah. if you're going to keep advancing your knowledge, then you're going to be um, learning from, from the very people you, 
you work with. So th th that that's where I'm at, and th th that's where I plan to be for the rest of my career. It's fascinating, man, because thinking back to how it started, you did what a lot of young people are actually afraid to do because you have the pressures of your parents. They wanted you to be a lawyer, I think it was, maybe a doctor or something like that. And you said, that's just not for me. That's not really what I want to do. It's not what I think I'll be good at. And then you mm -hmm. went on this retreat and did a 10-day vow of silence. Can you talk a little bit more about what that was like and, and why you even decided to do that? Yeah, well, so I, I was 23 at the time. My friend UJ um, had uh, recommended it and he talked it up. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not employed right now anyway. <laughs> and I'm kind of lost in life. And mm -hmm. it's a, on a donation-only basis so so I could afford it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I decided to go and you basically live like a monk for, for 10 days. So you don't speak to other people. You, you don't look others in the eye. You, you have to leave. I mean, in 2006, it was easier to leave your phone behind, but you have to leave your phone behind. Yeah. Um, you, you can't read or journal or, or write. It's really you live like a monk. You, you eat wow. vegetarian food. You, wow. you you live like a monk for, for 10 days and they give you some instruction in, in how to do Vipassana meditation. So th th that that's what I went through and it, it basically caused me to return back to Toronto quite clear-headed and, and quite fearless, at least for a few weeks afterward. <laughs> yeah, that's but. What was the per when when they tell you about this retreat and they say you're going to go through this 10 day period of silence, they break it down for you. Are they explaining what the purpose or the outcome is supposed to be before you start? Yeah, I mean, th th this th this was quite some time ago. Um, but I would say that it's based on the strength of my friend's recommendation that I decided to go. But by the time that I was deciding to go and signing up, you know, it doesn't. It didn't matter so much what the website said, but mm. because my, my friend's recommendation is what got me to sign up. Sure. Um, but it was definitely um, made clear up front that it it would be silence, that um, you would get instruction on how to meditate, but you'd be meditating about fourteen hours in a day. That you're not supposed to bring your cell phone or any reading material. And some people do not survive the first couple of days. I mean, I, I say the word survive very yeah. loosely, um, but, but some people find that when they're alone with their own thoughts, they're not ready for the thoughts inside their own heads. So they have to back out early. And of course, they do permit that. So to avoid people backing out, I, I, if I remember correctly, they were quite clear that this is actually what the meditation retreat is about. Do you, did you find when you were going through that 10 day period of silence, I mean, how difficult was it really? Cause I'm sure most of us, especially myself included, when I think about being alone these days, being alone mm -hmm. and quiet for 10 days straight, probably wouldn't bother me that much, but probably when I was 21, 22, 23, it would not have been a comfortable experience. So what was it like for you? Well, I, I would say that the hardest part is physically sitting still for hours at a time yeah. and then coping with the cramps. And they actually guide you through, um, you know, the, 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 the pain and other bodily sensations can be tolerated. So even if I'm sitting there for two hours and my leg starts to cramp and, 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 I, and I start to hurt, 
that's just more substance for me to meditate upon, interestingly mm. enough. Um, and, and then if, if there's a mosquito that lands on me, then that's just more for me to meditate upon. Interesting. Um, so it, it's kind of like climbing a mountain where you expect the mountain to be difficult, which is what makes it worth climbing. Mm. And th that's what makes the climb rewarding. Um, so I kind of knew what I was getting my, myself into. Um, th th I think it's the physical bit that's the most difficult. Um, emotionally, I, I did have a lot to process, but the commitment to 10 days, I think, is what allowed me to feel that I don't have to process everything at once, that I, I did have a long enough timeline. Now, whatever comes out one or day two, I'm going to feel like I've thought through by mm -hmm. day 10. That's interesting to think about, man, that the physical aspect would be more difficult than dealing with the mental. So you're saying for 14 hours straight, you literally sit in the same I mean, place? The, 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 there are meal breaks. Um, ah, okay. You, so the, 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 the day is bro broken up. So it's not that you're sitting 14 hours straight. Okay. But if you look at the 24-hour day and you take out two hours for self-care and meals mm -hmm. and eight, eight hours for sleep there's 14 hours left where you don't work you don't read you don't talk to others but you meditate that's wild man that's i recommend wild. it heartily to really everyone. yes they, they, they actually um during or or afterward um they, they do have kind of an anti-hypnosis bias and i kind of know where it comes from like many religions um, have kind of anti-hypnosis bias. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I do see where it comes from. Um, but um, I, I nonetheless recommend that anyone who feels like they want to take on that challenge and they have 10 days to completely be, be off the grid and disconnected, um, it, it's there are Vipassana meditation centers around the world. They, they were founded by, I think, a Burmese industri industrialist named S. N. Goenka. So his gift to the world is all these meditation centers mm. um, that, that he wanted to to set up and that he helps to fund so that people can just, you know, a 23-year-old unemployed young man can just pay a donation that he feels he's able to afford and, and attend. Where do you think that bias against hypnosis comes from because you said that particularly lots of religions are kind of like uh, anti-hypnosis why do you think that is well a lot of religions are kind of like anti um and anti-women or anti-black cats um or um anti-gay um, so I, I wouldn't say that a religion being against something is an indictment of the thing um, as much as the judgmentalness of the religion. So um, I, I would say that hypnotism ends up getting lumped in with the occult, with, with witchcraft. Yep. Um, now, when it comes to this meditation retreat specifically, I think the bias comes from the idea that one should observe his or her own thoughts and not have an outside party okay. give them the thoughts to think. Okay. And that's, that's the main distinguishing factor between meditation and hypnosis. 
In meditation, you're left alone to think your own thoughts and observe your own thoughts and feelings and imaginings. And you're, giving, you're given some instruction in like how to, how to sit, um, how to breathe, what, what you might focus on, how to sit with more uncomfortable feelings, but you're not told specifically what to think as a worldview. Mm-hmm. One of the distinguishing characteristics of hypnosis is that because we are trying to establish new patterns of thinking, I am specifically and strongly guiding the client into new ways of thinking. Now, mm-hmm. this is with their prior consent. This, this, this is with their full knowledge. That indeed, if I didn't do this, I don't think my clients would be happy with me. But, but still, it's very, very different from the philosophy behind meditation. And it's even very, very different from the philosophy behind psychotherapy, where there are a few practices that will just straight up tell you, think this Mm -hmm. in your situation as a best practice. Very true. It's one of the most interesting things about the book you wrote, The Skeptic's Guide, and um, the difference between meditation, psychotherapy, and hypnotherapy, and how Psychotherapy, for example, they take, a, when you go talk to a psychologist, they take the analytical approach. They're trying to dig into your mind and go through your past and figure out what the problem is. And you also spoke about how that's not even necessarily the most reliable way to solve all mental issues because we erroneously believe that all the answers are in the unconscious mind when that's not necessarily the case. And with hypnotherapy, it's more of a practical approach where we don't need to dig into your past and uncover all those demons. We're just trying to figure out how do we change what we're thinking and doing now so we can have a better future. Is that right? Precisely. So the the idea that we have to uncover unconscious information goes back to Freud. And I've often been heard to, to not quite disparage, but take Freud down a peg. Mm. And it's because he was initially trained in hypnotism. So before he developed psychoanalysis as his own practice, um, hypnotism at the time was a popular thing to do in Vienna. And he was trained in hypnotism by some of the better physicians of the day. He didn't do a deep dive into it, but he threw it under the bus, basically. Mm. He, he, he said it's just for surface level change, that it's just symptom substitution, and the, the root cause will pop up again in a different way. Mm. And then he went on to develop psychoanalysis, which informs all modern psychotherapy. Yeah. And because Freud had such an oversized influence on modern psychology, for the past century or so, psychoanalysis and then psychotherapy have become prestigious professions. Hypnotism just kind of got stuck in this weird limbo state where it, it, it's, it, it's still kind of alive, but, but it, it, it's also not that well respected. It's not that well understood. Now, if it weren't for Freud, I, I believe that hypnotherapy as a profession would have evolved to the point where it has the same stature Mm. as psychotherapy or psychology today. And 
you know, I'm doing what I can do through everything that I'm saying out loud in public to kind of try to restore this profession back to the stature that I believe it deserves. Now, I, I, I don't think it deserves more stature than, let's say, medicine. Um, but I also think it's been much diminished and thrown under the bus. And that if we elevate hypnotherapy as a profession to a much higher level, that, you know, right about where psychotherapy is, that I, I, I think gives it proper credit. If I picked an existing profession that I would liken hypnotherapy to, it's not, it's not going to be psychotherapy. It's not going to be psychology. It's actually education. Mm. If you understand what I do through the lens of an educator, then it makes a lot more sense that we don't have to go digging into the client's past to arrive at solutions. If you take an educator's perspective, all we have to do is to communicate to our client ideal thinking in their circumstances and then irrespective of where point A is, point B mm. is going to be the best practices for thinking that, 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 that for most or all human beings are best practices for, for thinking. One of the consequences of, of Freud's invention of psychoanalysis is often we believe that we we are deeply individual, and and we we are, mm -hmm. but we're not individual to the point where there's no overlapping center of the Venn diagram between, let's say, you or me and eight billion other human beings. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the big overlapping center of the Venn diagram, we're going to find the similarities. And as a hypnotherapist, if I'm going to serve my clients best, that's where I speak to. I don't speak to the thin edges of the Venn diagram where you find the differences. I speak to the gigantic overlapping center. And when you're looking for it, you find it. What do you mean by that? When you're looking for it, you find it. Do oh, you mean? so I'll, I'll use an analogy. So um, if we go to the dog park, right, mm -hmm. and we encounter um, a dog that has an appearance we've never seen before, we can see they're a dog, but maybe they have a weird muzzle shape mm -hmm. and maybe they have longer legs that, that we've seen on a dog before. We would not be making a mistake treating that animal as a dog if we recognized that it's a dog. We mm -hmm. don't have to figure out the species. Oh, sorry, we don't have to figure out the breed to then know how to treat the animal. We don't even have to know the, the animal's gender before we know how to treat the animal. As long mm -hmm. as we can recognize the animal is a dog, it doesn't matter whether it's Chihuahua-sized or Great Dane-sized. It doesn't matter whether it's male or female. It, it doesn't matter so much whether it's one year old or ten years old. If you treat the animal like a dog, you will not be making any mistakes. If you try to treat the animal that you recognize to be a dog as different from the other dogs in the dog park, that probably would cause you to make mistakes. Now, when we approach human beings, um, we, we kind of look at differences and, you know, like politics has gotten quite divisive where we kind of look past like we're not even looking at the shared humanity a lot of the time so we're looking specifically at the differences in ways that we don't do to dogs even to dogs <laughs> but so when i say 
when we're looking for it, we find it. I'm saying that if we approach human beings as human first, not gender first, not race first, not age first or wealth first or income first, if we approach human beings as human first, the way we do even for dogs, then that's when we're looking at the big center of the Venn diagram where there's a lot of overlap. And sure, there are the individual differences. But I, I claim that our attention is on the important things mm. if we're looking at the commonalities and not at the differences. Such a pragmatic and practical way of looking at it, too. That's one of the things I like. I believe your slogan is making hypnosis make we, sense, right? We, we make hypnosis make sense, yes. exactly what you're doing. You just explain it in such a practical way. Because when I think about, let's say, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, a lot of it is kind of like what you said, treating this person as if they are different. Something is wrong with me. I'm other and that kind of thing. So when you start from that point, like you said, you're much more likely to make mistakes because maybe that's not really the case. You're just a human who's a little confused or has some kind of issue, but that doesn't make you less human. So we can still treat you like any other human. And I also find that one of the the things that always made me hesitant about therapy in general or being diagnosed by a psychologist is the idea that once you label something, then you kind of internalize this is what I am or this is who I am. I have OCD, I have BPD, this and that. And then you start behaving based on this internalized belief that I have this problem. And then people also start to use it as a justification for some of their behaviors and tendencies instead of actually dealing with them. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like one of the major differences between the analytical approach and the more practical approach is we're not really focused on labeling you in any certain way. We're just trying to change whatever deep-rooted beliefs you have because that influences all your actions, which then influences the way your life turns out. Yeah, well, I would say that really good therapists also avoid diagnosing or at least diagnosing quickly. Mm. So I, you know, I, I, I see psychotherapists as, as mostly very well-meaning people. Um, who have who have compassion and want to help their clients, but often their hands are tied because of the methods and the 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 principles they've been trained in. If you take the same people and tell them that in the context of hypnotherapy, if if, if they were to do hypnotherapy, it's okay to be very directive about how the client might think then I think that they're going to feel like their hands are less tied and the compassion they have for their clients could then translate into more effective guidance for the client. But, but the, 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 the psychoanalytic or the psychotherapeutic um, modalities tend to um, steer their practitioners away from being very directive yeah. um, or giving advice or just, in other words, straight up telling people what to think. And that's my special, that, 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 that's my specialization. Um, I would say that the, the, the main distinction that requires me to just straight up tell people what to think by generalizing from human beings is that when someone engages with a psychotherapist, the expectation is that for five sessions or so, you're getting to know each other 
And then maybe mm -hmm. for another 20 or 50 sessions, you start the work. And yeah. maybe five years later, you're going to feel better. That's yeah. the expectation for psychotherapy. When people engage with me, the expectation is that after a couple of sessions, I've said the magic words and they don't need me any longer. Yeah. And usually if the expectation is one or two sessions, I have to talk them up to three to five. But, but at least it's rarely more than five sessions. So it's that time constraint. That means I have to speak to the person as a human being first and individual differences second. If, if I had people expecting to work with me for five years, I can first get to know them as an individual. Yeah. And then my, my suggestions would be not just based on their humanity, but also based on their individuality. Mm -hmm. It's just because of the extremely constrained timelines that, that, that I have to speak to their humanity because I don't even have the time to get, them, to, to, get to know them as an individual. Yeah, you also talked about that in your book, which is people have drastically different expectations of a hypnotherapist and a psychotherapist. And like you just said, you might have three to five sessions with this person and you may never hear from them again, see them again. Where does the expectation that it's supposed to happen quickly and instantly come from? It's... It's actually grounded in reality. So if you approach a psychotherapist and you say, I just want to do three sessions, they're going to feel overwhelmed. They're going to feel like they can't help you mm -hmm. and they might turn you down as a client. If you approach a hypnotherapist like myself and you say that you've saved up some money and you can do three sessions, mm -hmm. then I have three hours or roughly about three hours to have the client suspend their usual mode of thinking and listen to me talk about an ideal mindset for the circumstances that they are in. Mm -hmm. And three hours or five hours of careful, close listening to some very good, well thought out ideas inevitably is going to help people. It's, it's so weird when, when people sit and, and, and they say they're listening, but then it's like nothing I said was retained. That, that it rarely happens. It doesn't happen very much. But, but the, the much more typical outcome after three to five hours of listening is the client retains a significant portion of what they've heard me say. Hmm. And then if what I've said to them is backed up by real life itself, mm -hmm. then they don't even have to believe me. They don't even have to hear me make my points again. They can just believe their own eyes and ears. Yeah. And that's where I want to get the client. It's kind of like after enough driving instruction, you don't need a driving <laughs> instructor any longer because the road teaches you everything else you have to know. Yeah, that's a good analogy too. And I also wanted to know more about the business aspect of it because just the nature of the way you work with these people you might see them at most five times let's call it which yeah. from a business perspective means you theoretically need to bring in much more people because a psychologist might have you know a handful of clients yeah. for years without needing new ones so I'll, I'll try not to make the rest of the conversation about business because this sure. 
I have so many thoughts and so few people ask me, what are your business challenges? And, you know, isn't it so much harder for you than for a psychotherapist right. because you graduate your clients after three to five sessions? And, and yes, it is harder for me or any hypnotherapist than for someone who sees the same clients week after week for, for months or, or years. So I've kind of worked out a business model that works within these constraints. By necessity, I need full-time staff for the onboarding. So um, they're going to be answering the phone. They're going to be um, orienting the client to my practices and principles. They're going to be doing an intake with the client and providing their notes to me. Based on the intake that they do, I'm writing out treatment plans so that the client knows what ideas I'm going to put inside their head that I claim to be best practice before I communicate those ideas for, 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 for them to accept. So this level of service, this level of transparency allows me to charge a higher rate. Um, I'm probably one of the more expensive hypnotists in Toronto on a per session basis. If you look at it as that times three to five, most people can't afford it. It's going to be cheaper than whatever psycho uh, psychotherapist charges times 50. Yeah. So um, the, the fact that I work on a short timeline and I'm able to articulate what people are going to get on that timeline means that I'm able to afford the full-time staff. Mm -hmm. I'm able to afford downtown office space. I, I even have a bit of extra time to post on TikTok and to post on <laughs> YouTube and to do interviews like, like these. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, everything that I'm doing kind of ties together where because I have this... Oh, hang on a second. Can't hear you. Ran into an error. Slides in their session. I can see you, but I can't hear you yet. Hang on a second. Bam. Okay, we are back, my friend. So we were talking about how your level of transparency, your level of service, the quality of what you do, and being very, very clear about what they're going to get and how it's going to help them allows you to charge a higher rate. I think that's where we got cut off. Yes. And the whole thing feeds into, into itself, where the, the more I'm transparent with people about what I'm going to do before I do it, and then I follow up to see whether I've done what I claimed I could do, the better my treatment plans become. And then the more content I have to talk about during these kinds of interviews and podcasts. So um, I, I really see my career going in the direction of um, only just getting better and better. The, the first 15 years were not always easy, like the first maybe decade or decade and a half of, of any career. But um, it was the written treatment plans and the transparency provided by those plans that really seemed to take my practice to the next level. But I needed to go through the first 10 or 15 years of my career before I, well, new enough <laughs> to be able to write out a plan for someone before I've started to, to work with them. So yeah, th 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 that's the point I'm, I'm, I'm at these days. And um, it, it is with a lot of credit to all my clients who trusted in me and believed in me yeah. before I could write treatment plans, before I could speak cogently about the subject on interviews like this, because it's because of all of them 
who trusted me when I was in my 20s and my early 30s. That's how I I got to this point. It's also, um, I imagine, in part because of the the bold guarantee that you make before you accept new clients, which is basically if this doesn't help you, if this is invaluable to you, you don't pay for it, which is a very, uh, you place a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to deliver because obviously the bills need to be paid, right? Yeah, yeah. well, when I was 23 and I just got back from that meditation retreat and I just decided almost on a whim to rent an office and start seeing clients, um, there were a number of established hypnosis practices in Toronto that had a much longer history than me and had more credible practitioners than me. I needed a way to stand out. And um, I'd often admired businesses that um, are very customer friendly in such a way that if they do a good job, they make money. If they don't do a good job, they refund the client's money. So I, I thought, well, I'll do this for my clients, where either I'm able to help them, in which case I've earned my fee, or I'm not able to help them or not able to help them to a point where they're happy with me, in which case I haven't earned my fee and I'll return it. So in my first years, the refund rate was significantly higher than it is in recent times. As you can imagine, And what I learned through the refund policy is that not everything you learn about hypnotism in books and workshops and certification courses is going to dependably produce satisfied clients. That there are some techniques and some things hypnotists say that dependably don't seem to help the people they're purported to help. Now, without a refund policy, there'll be a dissatisfied client who doesn't want to talk to me. With a refund policy, I have a dissatisfied client I can turn into a, you know, moderately okay client, Mm. and they are willing to talk to me. So I think the most important part of the refund policy is the, 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 the data I collect on techniques that work and techniques mm. that don't, yeah. or situations hypnosis can help with and situations hypnosis repeatedly can't help with. So let's talk about that because I'm, I imagine a lot of clients come to you. Back. Oh, hang on. Can you see me? Uh, I, I can see you, but I think that, that there's a bit of a stutter. Really? Yeah. Okay. Think, can you hear me now? I think we're back. Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, the the aspect of um, what people come to you for, I imagine after so many years of doing this, you start to see patterns and the reasons people come to see you. So let's start with that. What do most people come to you asking to help or asking you to help them with? Yeah, well, everything that's in the realm of a problem that can be helped or even eliminated with a change in perspective or thought processes, then I can almost certainly help. Mm. And then anything that doesn't change, anything that isn't alleviated by new thought processes, I probably can't help with. Mm. So let's say that someone has chronic pain, right? Mm. Let's say they have a sports injury and they have chronic pain. Well, two people with the same injury are going to suffer to different degrees based on how they interpret or process 
the pain. Sure. If they have an attitude of how could I have done this to myself, my life is ruined, they compound their own suffering. Yeah. But if they take the attitude of, well, my body's injured, whoops, but it's going to heal. I'm going to be back in the game again. Well, that person has the same injury. The healing period is roughly about as long, but they're focused on what I'll say are, are the right things, the, the mm. important things, the, the things worth keeping in mind. So even if hypnosis can't help the person recover from the sports injury, we can still help the person in the realm of their attitudes or perspectives around that physical injury. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So things like psychological, um, I don't know if you would call them disorders. I honestly don't know what else to call them, but somebody who can't stop smoking, can't stop eating, these kinds of things yeah. can be so, taken so care of. Smoking cessation used to be the most common thing we helped with, and mm. smoking rates have gone down by more than half, I believe, since I started practicing. So mm. we don't see as many smokers. We are seeing more people who want to quit vaping now. <laughs> Um, weight loss and, and, and overeating or, or emotional eating is going to be a mainstay for most hypnotherapists. <clears throat> and fears and phobias would be the mm. other big one. Interesting. So fear of flying, fear of public speaking, th these fears are okay. usually um, based on what we imagine as opposed to what we see. 100%. So if we look past what we imagine and see with our eyes – that no one in the audience is a threat to us, we're going to be calmer. Mm -hmm. If we see with our eyes that the plane's just kind of flying along, nothing bad is happening, well, then, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's only if we start to imagine threats in the unknown, that's where we're terrified of an audience that gathers to hear us speak. That's where we're afraid of the safest mode of transportation mm. that allows us to fly over mountains and over oceans and over obstacles to quickly get to a destination. So those three issues, smoking, weight loss, and fears, the last time I checked comprised about half of our clientele. Mm. The, the other half is miscellaneous things like irritable bowel syndrome, um, pain management, alcohol use, um, various fears and anxieties and worries, um, anything that's stress-related, mm -hmm. anything where the mind-body link is a prominent um, component of, of the problem, a change in perspective can usually help. Therefore, hypnotherapy can usually help. There's a, a businessman, entertainer, uh, former athlete. His name is Rob Deerdick. Have you heard of him? I have not. Well, he's um he's from here in the U.S. and he talks a lot about how he became so successful because he was a professional skateboarder at one time and he was skating for the company DC. It's a skateboard company. They sell clothes and all that type of stuff. And he got to the end of his contract. I think he was in his mid twenties or something, and he was expecting to resign and you know renew his contract and have more success, make more money. And his boss basically told him, like, nah, you're done. We'll maybe give you another year and we're looking for other talent. And so he said he went to a hypnotist in San Diego. His name is George Pratt. And he went and got hypnotized for success. And then after that meeting with the hypnotist or maybe a few meetings or something like that, he just went on the most incredible run in his career he had ever seen in life. And he attributes a lot of his success to being hypnotized for success. And 
years ago when I heard him say that, I'm like, come on, man, what are you talking about? But mm-hmm. after reading your book and listening to you speak about hypnotism and what it really is, it seems a lot more realistic to me. And I see you nodding your head like this is a totally normal thing. Maybe you've done it before. <laughs> it It is. Well, normal is relative. but That's true. It, it, it's true. It is something that for a hypnotherapist, it, it doesn't cause us to bat an eye or feel like credibility is being strained mm. to imagine that someone can have a winning streak in, in their career mm-hmm. after having a mindset that focuses on winning and success be instilled in them. Mm. So I, I don't know what I think you said the name was George Pratt. So yeah. what, what, the, what the hypnotist had, had said, um, but common things I have to say to different clients um, who feel stymied by their own feelings of of of, of anxiety or being an imposter. Can you explain stymied? Them. What does that mean? Oh, so stymied. Um, um, hamstrung, uh, limited. Ah, okay. um, um, yeah. Uh, impeded in a way, right? They're kind of held back impeded, by this thing. Impeded. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So, so for, for for people who who feel impeded. Um, one thing I always have to communicate is, is that when people finish a marathon, when people climb a mountain, when people win the championship game, it's not by telling themselves that they can't. It's by telling themselves that they can. Yeah. Even if two athletes are evenly matched, it's the right call for both ath- athletes in their heads to tell themselves that they can and to fixate on winning to the exclusion of any other possibility. Mm. So one other way I'll put it is that if you're the captain of your ship, which all of us as adults are, then there are 360 degrees you could turn the ship in, right? right? But there's only one direction that points your ship at the destination port. So as the captain of your ship, to um, weigh the odds in your favor, you want to neglect the 359 other degrees of freedom and point your attention and your thoughts and your planning at the one singular direction that you want to go in. So a lot of people who feel impeded, they, they, they feel overwhelmed because there is every possibility available to them but not every possibility is going to be the straightforward way to achieve a goal and if you're able to kind of identify well which direction should you face in then that's the only one really to care about like the marathon runner they could think of a million reasons why they should stop but the only thing that gets them to cross the finish line is to put one foot in front of the other until they're across the finish line. I'm really glad you said that too. It makes me think of um, another clip I was listening to from a podcast, this guy named Joel Turner. He uh, is a master arch archman, people that practice archery. I don't know the professional yeah. term for it, but he trains a lot of people on what he calls shot anxiety, which is when you're going to shoot the arrow, you need to be hyper-focused on whatever it is you're doing every single moment. And people just let all these thoughts and doubts and distractions creep into their mind, which keeps them from hitting the target or reaching the destination like you just mentioned. And he tells a story about when he was training these guys how to shoot, that there was this dude who, it was like a 20 yard, or the target was 20 yards away from them. 
and he just couldn't hit the target. He was bouncing bullets off the floor like 15 yards. He wasn't even getting close to the target. So he went over to train this guy and he said, just follow my instructions. Just do what I tell you to do. Lift up the gun, aim it, get your sights right, and then start squeezing the trigger, but don't make the gun go off. And he saw him like squeezing, squeezing, squeezing. He said, okay, now squeeze a little bit more, but don't make the gun go off. He's squeezing more and bow, the gun explodes. And he was like, man, that scared the crap out of me. He was like, yeah, it's supposed to because you're finally present in the moment. And what he realized was as he gave the instructions time and time again, the person would move at the same rate that he was speaking. And he was like, man, I've got complete control of this guy's mind right now. And then after doing research, he discovered that it was neuro-linguistic programming, which is something that you speak about in your book. So could you explain in layman's terms what exactly that is and how it ties into what you do? Uh, yes. So an aside, I'm actually the official hypnotist for the Canadian National Skeet Shooting Team. <laughs> we don't have another hypnotist, okay. so I'm the official hypnotist. Okay. But, but yes, um, and I went out to, to do skeet shooting um, way out in um, outside of Toronto. So mm -hmm. um, I have a little bit of experience sh shooting shotguns at least. Um, so NLP or neuro-linguistic programming was developed in the 1970s, starting in the 1970s mm -hmm. by Richard Bandler and John Grinder. And essentially what they did initially was they looked at therapists who were excellent at their craft. They looked at the family therapist, Virginia Satir. They looked at the gestalt therapist, Fritz Perls. And they looked at the hypnotherapist, Milton H. Erickson. And what they did was they, they, they modeled the language patterns of these world-class professionals under the idea that if you, if you can kind of make a model of how they think and, and how they speak, you can teach that model to mm -hmm. other people so that other people could be just as good of, let's say, a hypnotherapist as Milton Erickson. Right. Um, so stemming from that, NLP practitioners have modeled not just therapists, but marksmen. And they, they've modeled excellent communicators. They've modeled mm -hmm. people who are very creative under the idea that you could model and then teach excellence. So in this whole endeavor over, over the 1970s and 80s and 90s and even to this day, NLP practitioners have figured out a lot of things uh, about how one might make decisions um, to the best of their ability or how one might uh, think more clearly about a situation or set goals more effectively. Mm -hmm. And it is by modeling people who are excellent at what it is they do. So it's related to hypnosis because one of the original models for effective communication was a hypnotherapist, Milton H. Erickson, um, and how it applies to marksmanship, um, or I, I guess if, if it's an arrow or, you know, like... Archery or something like that? I'm not sure. Archery, yes. How it applies to that is that if you can figure out how a very good shooter, like a very good sharpshooter, thinks inside their heads as they let loose the bullet or how a really good archer thinks as they let loose the arrow, you can teach those thought processes to a student. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the instructor 
noticed that they're often surprised by the gun going off. So if the student's not surprised, there's a discrepancy between what the instructor does and what the student does. Now, there's a lot of NLP that's been called pseudoscientific because it's not it's not really an academic discipline. It's not really studied by serious researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do take some NLP with a grain of salt. But the idea or the concept of modeling as a way to teach excellence is something that I apply wholeheartedly. So, I, I mean, I'm not a perfect human being. and No mm-hmm. one is. But um, I know I I don't smoke tobacco and I don't drink too much, even though I live on the same planet in the same year as my clients. So if I have a smoker in front of me and they say they have to have a cigarette when they take a break, well, I know they don't have to. I know I don't have to. So I can just kind of look at, well, how do I step outside? So, So recently I've started using the phrase adult recess. Where <laughs> stepping outside is when I have a break in the clean yeah. air and, and I can be among trees and birds and I don't have to be in the stuffy air indoors. And if someone's smoking, I'll, I'll take the long path around them. So I talk about this in my hypnosis sessions with, with my smoking clients so that they have a model for how to take a break without having a cigarette. Mm. Makes perfect sense. And it actually is right in line with what uh, Joel Turner was talking about. You mentioned it actually, which is if you're not surprised, there's probably something you did wrong in comparison to what the instructor or an expert might do. And what he realized was the reason that he was so surprised by the, what do you call it, the recoil of the gun, because he was totally present. And before he learned to do that, he noticed that the body won't let you remain unprepared for an impact that knows that it knows is coming. So if the, the your mind knows that the gun is going to recoil, you're automatically preparing for that. So you lose focus of what you're trying to do. So when you only focus on what you're doing in the moment, the explosion should always be a surprise because you're only focused on squeezing the trigger and out of nowhere it goes off. And that's when you realize that he, he kind of created this whole system. Like you just said, he's trying to model his formula for hitting the target every time for staying present and you realize that he'd be talking to himself he'd here i go i lift up the bow pull back pull back and he's saying this to himself in his mind and eventually it just goes and so it's also how you talk to yourself in the moment that kind of gets you into that hyper focus that you need to get the job done one of the books i read early in life um was called zen and the art of archery and This was written, I think, in the 1930s. It was a Western scholar who went to Japan, Mm -hmm. and he joined a Zen monastery, and he was doing Zen archery as part of his practice. Mm -hmm. And at first he thought, well, why? Like, I came here to meditate. Why do they have me trying to hit a target? But you do have to be present in order to do archery most effectively. And if you're not present, you see it in the direction the arrow goes in. So... um, what you just told me, um, um, I, I believe I, um, I believe that book describes a similar concept yeah. where it's without intentionality that the arrow is loosed. Yeah. And that means you're going to be somewhat surprised by it, but, but that is desirable because that's when the arrow tends to hit its target compared to if you try to micromanage every muscle, in which case you're not going to do as good of a job as your body will be will be able to. 
100%. It's probably like that with everything in life because when even when I think about playing soccer, for example, I notice if I'm out there practicing, just shooting the ball, when I, if I'm, you know, my mind's in another place and I'm not focused, I miss a lot more shots and I just can't get the ball to do what I want it to do. But when I can quiet my mind and only look at the ball as I hit it, I look at nothing more than where I want my foot to make contact with the ball. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, I get some of the most perfect, accurate shots in my life. And that's when I kind of realized what you just said is presence is a huge part of it. And I just realized how much external things, even our own thoughts, can take our attention away from what's most important, which causes us to perform poorly, not just in soccer or archery, but in life in general, right? Well, everything inside our head, most things inside our heads, either are things that are imagined or things that are remembered, but not Mm -hmm. things that are sensed in the moment. And imagination tells you stories about things that might happen in the future. Memory tells you stories about things that had happened in the future. But if you are going to actually kick the soccer ball in in the patch you're supposed to kick or or the sweet spot Mm -hmm. where you're supposed to kick it, you can't do it with imagination. You cannot do it with memory. You can only do it with the evidence of your senses and then a, a little bit of eye-body coordination. Yeah. Um, but but th- th- this, um, this concept of modeling is, th- this is why a practice like hypnotherapy or separately NLP gets faster results than a problem-focused mm-hmm. approach that doesn't try to model excellence but focuses instead on exploring the problem. This Mm -hmm. is one of the key insights I got from Bandler and Grinder, who developed NLP. It's that um, if we can model and then teach excellence, it doesn't matter where your client is starting from because they're going to be leaving that place pretty soon anyway. For some reason, this idea has not become mainstream. For some reason, people believe that it's an absolute necessity to fully explore the client's individual problem and to the point where there's almost this professional prohibition against just giving good advice in the (laughs) psychotherapy world. And again, I I think psychotherapists are mostly very compassionate, well-meaning people, but if their profession requires them to focus on the client's problem. And there's almost this implicit prohibition against just telling them what the best practices are. Well, then psychotherapy ends up being the long way around compared to any practice that's willing to to be frank and straightforward in in teaching the best practices. And it kind of, what you just said, Hearing it makes so much sense. It seems so obvious because even I'm sure you've heard where focus goes, energy flows. So when you just think about it practically, obsessing over the problem kind of keeps you immersed in the problem as opposed to looking forward and figuring out where do I want to be. And it just seems like so much more of a practical approach to solving problems. So do you think that it's because of Freud specifically and his, and first of all, I'm curious to know how he even got so much influence. Was it just because he was the one that developed psychoanalysis or how did that happen? Well, he, he is the originator of a lot of thought 
very interesting thought around the human mind. So he, if if he didn't invent, he at least popularized the idea of the unconscious mind. Mm. Um, but the re one of the reasons that he became well known over his contemporaries is he had a nephew um, named Bernays. I, I want to say Edward Bernays. And Bernays is the originator of what at the time was called propaganda and which in the current time is called public relations. <laughs> but essentially, corporations would hire him to influence public opinion in ways favorable to the corporation. So tobacco companies hired Bernays to normalize tobacco smoking for women. And the way he did it was that he um, had a campaign uh, promoting tobacco as torches of freedom, where during the, the, the suffragette movement, the women's liberation movement, tobacco smoking was a way to be equal to a man. This is completely Jesus evil, Christ. by the way. That doesn't have to be said, but it's completely evil. And so Bernays um, took a lot from his uncle, Freud, where, you know, you look at advertising and PR, th there's a lot of suggestion and implication of unconscious drives and unconscious desires. Yeah. So, so, I don't know how truth. So, so far, I've stated what, what I, I, I I believe to be factual. Mm -hmm. It is somewhat speculative whether the the, the influence of Bernays or, or the um, the influentialness of Bernays helped his uncle Sigmund Freud to mm -hmm. be better accepted and better known around the world. Yeah. But th there is that family connection that I believe is quite well documented. That makes me think of something else I really wanted to ask you about uh, hypnosis in general, because you've explained that hypnosis is essentially, depending on how you look at it, a heightened state of suggestibility. It's almost like being right in the middle of being completely awake and completely asleep. And sometimes I ask myself, do you think maybe, especially here in the West, as a society, as a people, we're all kind of in this strange mass state of hypnosis where we're constantly just like staring at this screen who's telling us all kinds of things and this endless stream of ideas and propaganda and views. And most people aren't even really processing what they're hearing, but it's still entering the brain. And they just kind of like, well, that's what it is. So that must be the truth. Or this person sounds good and I like the way it sounds. So I agree. That's what I believe now. And sometimes I just think maybe a lot of us are walking around half sleep just accepting whatever suggestions are offered to us. What are your thoughts on that? The definition of hypnotism I gave earlier is that it's both a suspension of critical thinking and wholehearted acceptance of the idea that's being accepted. Right. So someone who's in a position of authority, so if you see someone on television and they have a stethoscope and a white lab coat, right? So they have those symbols of authority. Mm -hmm. They have a way of bypassing your own critical thinking because of the symbols of authority. Mm -hmm. And then whatever they say through your television um, is more easily accepted or believed in because the critical faculties have been bypassed by the symbols of authority. So hypnotists who, who think philosophically 
often will claim that we're all in some kind of trance at some point. Mm. Like multiple hypnotists. Um, so Adam Crabtree here in Toronto is one example. Um, and I want to say that there's a man named Dennis Weir, but don't quote me on that, um, who has a similar idea that, that it's impossible not to be in some kind of, of trance or to have some kind of selective thinking. We would be overwhelmed by, by all the sensory data flooding into our eyes and ears unless we, we were selective in mm. our attention and selective sure. in our thinking. So like if we have a spiral in front of me and I'm focused on that, that's very, very selective. But to some degree, we have to be selective in our thinking and and our our attention just to make sense of the of the world mm -hmm. so it gets kind of philosophical but yes that there is a lot of merit to that idea yeah man because i just get the sense that um kind of like i said before we're kind of walking around it's almost like critical thinking skills aren't even really being taught much by teachers by parents by friends even by the most prominent members yep. of our society that we all watch on our screens or listen to on podcasts i hear very few people talking about how um dangerous it is for so many of us to be walking around not even really thinking about what we're experiencing in life or the things we say the things we do how our environment affects us and the way we feel and yep. think and stuff like that when it's really one of the most important things you need to be aware of if you want to like achieve the outcomes you want in life. So yeah, well, I I, I want to answer that and and also please. in a way continue what I was saying about Sigmund Freud and how his ideas had spread. Perfect. Because for better or for worse, after roughly 1989, capitalism has won around the world. Yeah. We live in a capitalist society. And the more capital you have, the more influence you have over other yeah. people. So for better or for worse, I didn't make the world the way it is. I was seven years old when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, or I guess I was like nine when the Soviet Union dissolved. Um, but this is the world we live in. And well, if you kind of look at a practice like mine, where I am trying to get people to believe in their own senses, and I am trying to get people to trust their own judgment, and I am trying to get people to feel self-assured and self-confident, right? And I'm trying to do this as, as quickly as I can by being very clear about how to be among the self-assured and the self-confident. Well, you know, I'm never going to have as big of a practice as, let's say, a, a, a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst who has clients coming back three times a week for five years, and then they can hire other psychoanalysts to share office space with and to share um, administrative help with because, you know, each client's going to bring them maybe $50,000. Each client brings me maybe $1,000 maybe $1,500. So I've got to have the full-time staff. I, I um, you know, have to do a lot of work that ends up being not paid for. So capitalism disincentivizes a practice like mine. Capitalism incentivizes 
a practice like psychoanalysis. Yeah. It incentivizes a practice like psychotherapy. If psychotherapists all became hypnotherapists overnight, a lot of psychotherapists would be out of a career because the, the best psychotherapists would just keep having high client turnover and it will be easy to get a slot with them. Mm -hmm. So everyone who's not a fantastic psychotherapist would not have a career any longer. And th this is the world we, we live in, that th this is how people are incentivized. So th that's part of, I think, why psychoanalysis first and then psychotherapy has kind of been the dominant modality and hypnotherapy has stayed so small. If, if, if a hypnotherapist is, well, um, if they're practicing their profession to its fullest capabilities, they are going to be done with their clients much more rapidly than a psychotherapist would for, for a similar presentation of, mm -hmm. of, of issues. Um, so th th that adds on top uh, of my answer uh, um, about like, why is it the Freud-derived kind of model that's taken off and hypnotherapy's kind of stayed small? Well, we, you know, the rapid change is not incentivized by capitalism, unfortunately. I, I actually think I would rather live in a capitalist country than a communist one. Any day of the week, I would much rather live in a country where the supermarkets are stocked full of fresh produce from around the world. Yeah. Um, but, but we also have to acknowledge the, the reality that um, you know, it, it, capitalism is not fair in the sense that the best practices rise to the top. It's actually the most money-making practices that rise to the top, and the yeah. less profitable practices tend to have a harder time at at things. Um, so Why do you... Go ahead, go ahead. Please. So well, no, was... Please. Well, I was going to ask you just um, why you think that... You, I, I don't know, maybe there have been other ones, but I've never seen a hypnotherapist talk about hypnosis and be so open and transparent and post actual clips of them doing their work and talking about what it is, how it's going to help you. Because you also said that's a really important part of epistemology, being able to explain how you know what you know and how this is different from other options that I have and how this specifically is my best option. Why do you think there aren't more hypnotists sharing information like you are? Well, one reason I, I think is that if someone has the 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 work ethic and the grades and the intellect to get into grad school, they're going to then become a psychotherapist or a psychologist or a physician. And then they will have bought into the model of change that, that requires multiple visits and they're going yeah. to do quite well financially. Hypnotherapy tends to attract people who are a lot more lost in life. So pe people like me, people like me at the age of 23. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's very easy to find an intelligent, um, thoughtful, ethical, well-spoken lawyer or physician or psychologist because these professions do attract the best and the brightest. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hypnotherapy is not among the professions. It's kind of like fitness training and yoga instruction, for better or for worse. It's not among the professions that is a first choice for the best and the brightest. Mm -hmm. It tends to attract the misfits. It tends to attract those who think outside of the box. Now, I I was kind of of going through, um, you know, some stuff in university that's, um, you know, um, it it turned out to to, to be complex PTSD. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but in university, my my grades kind of slipped and I, I, you know, my grades are not good enough for me to get into grad school. So I have an English degree from, from a pretty good university, but it's, it's not gone beyond that. And that's how I ended up in the hypnotherapy profession. Mm. If if I had proper therapy or treatment, or if I had a better childhood, then I probably wouldn't be talking to you about hypnotherapy. I might be talking to you about how psychotherapy is awesome and you shouldn't listen to the hypnotherapists. Yeah, this is just the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah, man, that's so interesting. And obviously we don't have to go too deep into it if it's sensitive, but I'm very curious to know, based on the way you grew up, how you developed complex PTSD because a layman like myself, when we hear that, that acronym, we're thinking oh, you must have seen war or some super traumatizing events must have happened or something like that that left you shook. So what happened with you? I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. Um, PTSD, as we usually think of it, mm-hmm. is usually caused by something like war or natural disasters. It's like yeah. a stab wound to the gut. Yeah. Complex PTSD, usually um, it's going to be harder to find that stab wound to the gut. Usually, it's the death of a thousand cuts instead. Mm. So I I mentioned I moved around a lot as a kid. I kind of learned the unfortunate lesson that friends always go away and doesn't matter how much I beg and scream, they're going to go away. And this was before Facebook, so I'm never going to hear from them again. That's just like one sample of what my childhood was was like. There's a whole lot more to it that I don't have to get into. Um, But... um, a lot of the things I say to my clients is because I've kind of been on, on, on the side of that where I'd suffered and also on, on the side of that where I've come through a lot of the suffering. And um, um, I at least believe or, or claim that, that, that I have ideal ways of thinking for the present day despite past suffering. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that, 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 that's in a nutshell. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of what you say or in the things that you do during your sessions and even the stuff you put out on TikTok or you speak about in your book 
sounds like it's really based on empathy. Like, you know what it's like to be in many of the places these people who come to you are in. And so that way you can speak from a place, not of, I don't think authority is the best word, but you can speak from a place of experience and basically show them that you don't have to go through years or decades of psychotherapy to get your life on track and just live a better life. Because even going back to the problem-based approach, focusing on the problem, even when people go to psychotherapists, they're looking for a solution. How do I get out of this dark place into a brighter one? And it seems like based on your experience, you didn't even have to go that route to arrive at a similar destination, which we all want. So I I actually did go through a few years of psychotherapy. Oh, did you? Okay. Yes. So first I tried a number of different psychotherapists until I found a good fit. Um, The two therapists I stuck with for years, both... um, either do or used to do hypnosis. So I I don't know whether it's that I'm of a like mind with them or that they don't judge me for my profession, but um, one of them uh, did CBT until he realized that I um, um, seemed to be dealing with complex PTSD. So he diagnosed me and suggested that I see someone who specializes more in complex trauma. Mm. So then I had my second longer term therapist. um, And excuse me, I'd uh, been through EMDR um, and just talk therapy. She also hypnotized me at least once. Um, So I'm not against psychotherapy. I've been on the client side for years. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of why I say that I see psychotherapists as well-meaning people whose hands are tied Mm. by the practices and techniques they've been trained in and are licensed to do. So, um, yeah, if if you take the average psychotherapist and you train them in hypnotism, I'm sure that if they're able to set aside their prior training and take on the view of a hypnotist, that their compassion goes further. Mm. they don't feel like they just have to sit and listen and empathize. They feel like they can actually intervene and and tell the client, here's, here's how I might suggest thinking instead. Mm. It it just is that that there's quite this pro this professional prohibition against being that directive. So weird. Can you explain uh, for me and anyone else listening CBT and EMDR, I think you called it. Yes. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, For people who've undergone therapy, people either love it or hate it, it seems. But it's a process of teaching you um, what kinds of thoughts might be distortions of truth and then how to think differently so that you're seeing your circumstances in less of a distorted fashion. So, so for example, the, the thought, um, I never do anything right is a distortion because if you think a little bit more about things you did do right, then, well, <laughs> there's a list of things you did do right. Yeah. So th- th- that's CBT. Um, EMDR is eye movement desensitizing and reprocessing, I believe. Okay. So the, the, the theory is that if you move your eyes back and forth while recalling traumatic memories, the traumatic memories get reprocessed. That, that there's some kind of connection between the oh. eyes and the brain such that you know if your eyes are moving side to side and you're remembering it, then 
um, the, 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 the traumatic memory starts to be processed by you as an adult, which means that, that you're not as stuck mm. the way you had been when you experienced the event as a child. Oh. Um, so the, 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 the eye movement back and forth is controversial, but because the studies are, I, I believe, primarily done by people who practice EMDR, but the reprocessing of memories as an adult, I think, is what causes the, the change. As a mm, child, okay. often you're overwhelmed when bad things happen, like, you know, you're moving again, and you, you lose your friends again, and you don't know why. As a child, that, 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 that makes an impact. Absolutely. But the reprocessing of trauma as an adult allows you to bring a whole new perspective so that it's more comprehensible and then you feel better about about the whole thing. Yeah. So I think it's actually the reprocessing more so than the eye movement that, that explains the, the changes that people experience afterward. Yeah. I do believe that people with severe trauma do need to reprocess trauma and that, you know, just the solution-focused approach might be only half of the equation. So often mm. if someone has unprocessed trauma or, or if they have an underlying mental illness like, like depression, it feels like all my solutions and positive suggestions are being placed upon quicksand. Mm, makes sense. But, but if I'm working with someone without so much of a trauma history or with a largely resolved history of trauma, and then I make my positive suggestions or I, I communicate what I claim to be best practices, it's like I'm building on actually a solid foundation. Mm. So usually I'm telling people who haven't um, seen a therapist for their past trauma that the right order of things is to make sure that, um, you know, that, that – they're at a point where the good things I say are actually believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's one of the prerequisites, I, I think, for the very rapid progress that people make with hypnotherapy, where, you know, if you have a, if, if the client has a solid foundation to begin with, it's a lot more plausible that sure. a few hours of listening is going to help them significantly. That's interesting I, because I kind of feel like that's at the place or that's the place I'm at personally, because similar to you, I moved around a lot when I was a kid. I probably never lived in a place more than three years until I was like 20 or 21 or something like that. So I don't know exactly what it was like for you. But when I think about constantly being the new kid everywhere, constantly having to make friends, uproot your entire life, the only people, the only constant was the change in location in my life. And we grew up like my family was uh relatively we never poor by any stretch of the imagination we grew up wealthy in the sense that we had more than everything that we needed but the home wasn't a healthy environment so school wasn't really the best home wasn't really the best and when I was a kid I didn't really understand it I was walking around thinking that I guess I just wasn't socialized properly after reading about psychology and learning a little bit it seems that's the case but I obviously don't know but I just always felt like man everybody knows something I don't everybody has something that I'm missing what if why don't I understand how to do what everybody else is doing in these social situations? And it wasn't until I was an adult and kind of started thinking back on it myself, that you start to notice things that you couldn't, you could never see as a kid and everything's much more clear. And I actually, at one point I went to see a psychologist, two different ones. And the first one, 
really turned me off because she was this lady that was kind of like almost treating me like a baby where everything was, oh my God, it's so sad. I'm so sad. And I'm like, bro, get the fuck out of here. I'm an adult. I can, we can have a real conversation. And the second guy I went to see certain things I would say, I just felt he wasn't taking me seriously. And he laughed at a couple of things I said that I was taking serious at the moment. So I guess maybe my feelings got hurt. And I was like, nah, this isn't for me. And I haven't really even considered psychotherapy since for that reason. And of course, with the current state of politics and how it's affecting psychology and psychotherapists and stuff, it's hard to even trust these professionals at this point. And that's why when I came across your content, it just seems like so much more of a practical way to deal with whatever's going on so that you can just move forward because at the end, that's what we want. So it's very interesting to hear you say that even still, you should probably get some stuff worked out with a therapist because like you said, if you're not right mentally, all the suggestions in the world won't make much of a difference. Well, I did have to go through a few therapists myself Mm -hmm. before I feel like I found someone and then again, someone else who could add a layer of insight above my own. Mm -hmm. So one principle I adhere to is that each client is the world's foremost expert on themselves. (laughs) So who am I to disagree with them about themselves? And that principle served me quite well. So um, for, for me to then trust a professional can offer an extra layer of insight, that is a tall order. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of expecting to go through several different practitioners before I find someone who's on the same page as me to begin with and yeah. then can add on top of all the many thought processes yeah. that I, I already have. So unfortunately, unlike when you're visiting a dentist where, you know, dentists generally have a certain level of capability for everyone, because we're dealing with a human mind and not the human body, there is unfortunately a process of vetting and screening different practitioners until you find the right right fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also talk about in your book, like specifically about hypnotherapists, and how to choose the right one and how to, you kind of like dispel a lot of myths and things like that to help people understand hypnotherapy in general. And also how to know when you're dealing with somebody who's blowing smoke versus somebody who can actually help you. Do you have any advice for somebody who, even if they're interested in hypnotherapy, but need to see a psychologist first, how would you personally vet psychologists to know this is somebody I can deal with? Yeah. Um, Well, I'll, I'll tell you my process, which might not be the same as your process or sure. your listeners' processes, because different people have different ways to arrive at trusting right. someone else. Um, I have found that um, things like credentials, years of practice, certifications, they demonstrate basic competence, but not necessarily a great fit. And sometimes people who have practiced longer or who have very impressive credentials, they kind of rest on their laurels. As a hypnotherapist, being in an unregulated profession where all my clients pay out of pocket, I kind of have to play the capitalism game. I can't expect clients to fall into my lap and that they just trust me. I kind of expect that I I, I have to demonstrate transparency and trustworthiness Mm -hmm. and to earn my client's business. And then I've got to deliver on 
what I've claimed I'm capable of, of helping the, the client through. So um, I, I look beyond credentials and that kind of thing when assessing another professional. I, you know, you obviously want to see that your doctor has their license still, but that is just like a basic level of, of competence. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, probably because I, I'm kind of an intellectual type, I, I like to ask tough questions and see the wheels turning. Mm-hmm. And I want to see that even if they come back to me with a, I don't know, I want to see that one, they have the humility to say that they don't know. And two, that at least the wheels turn first before they say, I don't know. Mm, and if, if, if the answer, you know, is something, you know, that, 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 that's a claim they make, or if they purport to say something that's wise, I, I, I kind of want to know that, that the, the, their thought processes are at least aligned with me enough that um, I can follow along and believe them, but also that they can take my own thought processes a little bit further, mm-hmm. at least a few steps further. And considering how much I think, it is kind of a tall order mm-hmm. for, for someone else, especially like in one hour or a few hours, yeah. to demonstrate that they can add on top of my own thinking in ways I've not thought of before. Mm-hmm. So that's my process. It's interesting, though. Like, it's, it sounds really, I mean, you're, the main thing you're testing for, for lack of a better way of saying it, is transparency. It's like, I'm not expecting you to tell me the meaning of life, but if you don't know, I also expect you to tell me that, right? It's really about intellectual integrity, it sounds like. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I, I kind of wish that, you know, you could just trust a degree or credentials or a certificate, um, but, you know, um, for better or for worse, we, you know, we as the client paying the professional, we do owe it to ourselves to ask the tough questions absolutely, and to vet our professionals ourselves. And I imagine you experience a lot of that being in an unregulated profession, yep. doing something that like I said, for most people, it seems like witchcraft, seems like bullshit. They're like, nah, I don't really know about this guy. So I imagine you spend a lot of time and with your content as well, just explaining to people, almost helping them unlearn what they thought they knew about hypnosis so that they can actually get on board. Precisely. So the, the We Make Hypnosis Make Sense slogan and the skeptic's guide and the treatment plans I write and these kinds of interviews and the TikTok videos this is so that people can put me through their own vetting process mm. without even calling my office. Yep. They can watch me talk for hours. And if they want to hear that every single thing I say is credible, well, they could watch everything I've produced online for free at home. Yep. And then if I, if I pass their vetting process, then they don't have to trust me. They can trust their own judgment which is actually kind of how I want it to be. I want people to trust their own judgment because they're best poised to look into their futures and understand Mm. themselves. I'm not well poised to look into someone else's future or make decisions for them. Yeah, man. That makes perfect sense. And it's funny because that is, it sounds like the way just good business should be done, regardless of the sector, right? So a lot of people have kind of figured out that, um, so I call it the honest car mechanics 
problem or dilemma mm. <laughs> where a lot of people have figured out that acting unethically or sloppily makes you more money than acting um, ethically and conscientiously. And unfortunately, I didn't make the system the way that it is. I understand how the West won the Cold War. I, I know there's like a new Cold War brewing. I, I hope the West wins again. But um, unfortunately, people have realized that if you take the long way around, you make more money. And, you know, sometimes the long way around has, has validity. The, the, the reason I kept going back to, to, the, to the, the two therapists I trusted was not because I had to, but because I saw the value that they offered. Mm. So I kept going back and I kept giving them more money because I get more value every time I pay them for an hour of their reflection. Yeah. But th th that to me is how capitalism ought to be done. And it shouldn't just be that, um, you know, if you convince people to take the long way around, then you win the capitalism game. It, it, sh it should be th th that, you know, if... if um, you know, if, if, if you act in a way that, that, that causes people to speak highly of you, th then that is how you win the capitalism game. But, but here's the thing. I think I'm actually still young enough that by the time I'm retired, I'm going to have a much bigger practice. I'm going to have more people understanding hypnotherapy the way that I'm explaining it to you. I'm going to have set more of a norm that, that might get complacent professionals to rethink their complacency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started when I was 23, right? So I'm 40 now. I, you know, I'm, I'm not even halfway through a normal length career. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, but this is the capitalism game. And I, I am staying in the game. Yeah, you got to, right? At the end of the day, like you said, we don't create the system. This is the game. And it's really up to you to either play or not play and deal with the consequences, right? Which makes me wonder from a, cause you're working for yourself. You have your own practice. You're responsible for everything from budgeting to marketing to customer service. Everything is on your shoulders, but I don't really understand. I never understood how professionals like psychotherapists or hypnotherapists like yourself value their services because you have to set the price and yeah. the client can decide whether or not they want to pay it. So when you're making such instrumental changes in people's thinking and thus the way their life plays out, how do you even begin to put a, a number on that? So th there are coaches who will say that I am undercharging. Mm. I, on a per session basis, I am one of the more expensive or highly prized practitioners, at least in Toronto. Mm -hmm. But when, when, when you look at total costs from, from session one to the client telling me that they don't need me any longer, it's like 1000 or, or 1500 Canadian dollars, which is, you know, less valuable than, than U.S. dollars. Mm. And then coaches will say, well, you could probably charge 5000 or or six, eight, ten thousand, 10000 and you're going to get a significant number of people paying the, the, those fees. So, so here's how I, I, I set my fees. Um, one is that my eye is going to be on rapid change, which means that I cannot price myself like someone whose eye is not on rapid change. I'll get clobbered by capitalism if I set my prices as though my clients are doing 20 sessions. Yeah. If, if I'm doing three to five sessions, I have to just out of economic necessity, I have to price myself. 
significantly higher than someone who's doing more sessions. Um, I also have a high overhead business. So I have 1,800 – actually, I, I, in counting my old office, I have 2,200 square feet in downtown Toronto. And I, I have full-time staff. So the first $15,000 that come in every month goes to my landlord and my staff, not to me. Then everything I, you know, I make beyond 15000 that all goes to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, I mean, th- 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 there was a question in there. Um, oh, but well, the question is, how do you even begin to put a number? Oh, okay. Exactly. So, so obviously, when people come to visit me, they can see I have a well-appointed office in a good location, and no one sets up an office like this if they plan to just pack up in the middle of the night and fly yeah. away. Yeah. So the physical space and the, the well-compensated staff give my clients the sense that they're in the right hands. So yeah. it's an investment. It's not just a pure cost. I'm not burning money by mm-hmm. having a nice space and, and staff. Um, and at first when I started, I priced myself roughly about in the middle of the range mm-hmm. for a practitioner in Toronto. So um, it was, I think, $120 back in 2006 just because it's the middle of the range. Yeah. And then every couple of years, my calendar becomes full enough that one way or another, I have to reduce my client load. So the way I reduce it is as I implement a price hike. Yeah. So every few years, my price goes up by $20, $30, $50. It's when I implemented treatment plans that I started getting booked three to four weeks out. So normally it takes a few years before I can bump up the price, but I've had a couple of subsequent price, um, a couple of subsequent years with price hikes Mm -hmm. since I started doing written treatment plans because now people can see what they're going to get. And that justifies a higher price point. So I'm up now to 350 plus the local sales tax Mm -hmm. per session. And it's not comparable with like $200 an hour where you don't know exactly the conversation that's going to happen. It's $350 for me to implement the points in the plan that the client's Mm pre-approved. So the fact that I'm doing these written plans, it does set me apart from people charging, say, $200. Yeah. Um, But essentially, the way I decide the pricing is every time my calendar starts to get too full so that paying clients wait too long to get an appointment, the price goes up for new clients. And then six months later, it goes up for everyone else too. Mm. Man, that's a really interesting business model, like a strategy for handling. It just sounds bulletproof because really, like you said, you spend so much time educating them beforehand, helping them understand what exactly they're getting into, how it's going to help them. It really is. Like there's nothing to really criticize at that point because you've laid it all out. So you're either in or you're out. And the only responsibility you have is just being the best professional you can possibly be and delivering on what you said you were going to deliver on. Precisely. Can I share with you my career goal? Please. Okay. So here's where I want to be by the time I'm retired. Let's say that the president of the United States of America, so like Joe Biden or like Barack Obama, like way back, let's say that he tells his staff, he or she tells Mm. their staff, I want you to find the best hypnotist in the world, right? Find me the most reputable, 
person who who other professionals speak highly of, who who has an excellent reputation, um, and really, you know, I can only hire one. So bring me the best, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be under consideration to hypnotize the president of the United States of America. That's my career goal. Wow. So right now, like Tony Robbins might be in that position, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And Tony Robbins kind of, kind of has a Me Too scandal right now, I, 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 I believe. Really? I, 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 so, so, what the fuck? Like so um, maybe it won't be Tony Robbins in 10 years. Um, but, you, you know, t- Tony Robbins, people like Tony Robbins, th- th- they're just, you know, people. People like yeah. you or me, yeah. they, they took a different path to get to, to where they're at. But, you know, I've got a future and the path I'm on is honestly a pretty good one. So, yeah, where I want to be eventually is to be so credible and such an obvious choice that when people look for the best in the world, my name at least comes up. Mm. So when you say the president of the United States, you mean that specifically, or you're just saying that's an example of a very high profile just, person? Just an example, because I, I imagine ah, okay. that like okay. Secret Service has to vet me, <laughs> yeah. and the yeah, president sure. has to vet me, and the staffers won't even put my name in front of the president uh, unless you know they're they're sure about it. So right. I just pick the president as okay. someone who you know anyone who talks to him gets a lot of vetting. Yeah, that's interesting, man. And you know what? Like you said, not only are you on a good path, I tend to believe that you can do it, man, just because the not only just the fact that you're putting out content, but the type of content you're putting out and how transparent it is. I really believe no matter what happens in the future, transparency will be the lifeblood of most businesses, especially when most business is being done online first. That's where we discover yeah. people and people can, well, I like to think a lot of people can smell the bullshit from a mile away. So you have no option but to be transparent. I'm playing the long game. Yeah. So people who don't take the transparent route, people who try to play the capitalism game just by extracting what they can from whoever lands in front of them, they're not playing the long game. Um, I'm playing the long game. I started when I was 23. If I have a normal career, I'll be hypnotizing people until I'm 65, 70. It's the kind of work where when I'm 75, if I want to have some clients, I can still do it. This is such a long timeline to develop a career on that, that, you know, I'm shooting for this goal, but I don't think it's outside the realm of of possibility. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense, man. How do you, like going back to when you were 23, you're just getting started. I have to imagine that you experienced lots of imposter syndrome. I have to imagine that there were times when maybe you even asked yourself, like, what am I doing? Like, am I really capable of achieving this? Can can you speak on that? Well, well, some people might say that my refund policy that I implemented from day one is a sign of low confidence. But I think that in that situation, my low confidence is commensurate with the amount of experience that I had at the time mm-hmm. and the scarcity of actual clients I had at the time. So, you know, I, I don't really believe in a grandiose fake kind of confidence where, you know, you're delusionally confident. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that confidence should feel like you have the full weight of truth on your side. Um, so, I mentioned earlier, and you read in the Skeptic's Guide, that, that from day one, I implemented the, the refund policy. So the, the philosophy is 
I should earn every cent that I make. Yep. If, if it's not earned, then I don't deserve it and I'll refund it. So that gave me confidence where I don't have confidence I can help every single one of my clients. Mm. But I do have confidence that because I'm going to uphold that policy, every single one of my clients reaches some kind of satisfying resolution and no one feels screwed. It makes perfect sense what you're saying, man. Like true confidence, really, it's it's just knowing that you're capable of achieving a certain outcome or reaching a certain goal just knowing what you're capable of and not necessarily uh like you said this pseudo confidence which is more about convincing other people what you would like to believe you're capable of human beings are so awesome and capable we don't have to imagine we're superhuman Agreed. we can just imagine our actual human potential and capabilities and have a lot to look forward to we really don't have to step outside the realm of humanity and imagine we're like machines yeah it's detrimental to imagine we're like machines or to imagine we're superhuman yeah but although i agree I think I can definitely see some points of why that would make us super vulnerable. Can you tell me what you mean by that specifically? Well, how would it be detrimental to start thinking of ourselves as machines as opposed to the humans that we really are? The rules for how we treat machines are different from the rules for how we treat human beings. We treat human beings with a basic degree of respect and kindness and decency, right? Mm -hmm. So like if we ourselves will not, you know, damage our own self-respect by being abusive toward another, you know, then we're not going to be abusive toward another. But the rules for machines are different. Mm. We can verbally abuse a computer with no consequences yeah. to the world whatsoever. Yeah. We, 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 we could curse at and yell at a broken cell phone, and there are no consequences to life. But the rules for life, the rules for how we treat human beings are, are going to be based in pro-social behavior where we yeah. cannot abuse a person. So, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. a lot of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm saying here, you know, I, I feel like if, if other people were saying these things about hypnotherapy or about how to think or how we should treat ourselves, if other people were saying it, then I could just like relax on a beach somewhere and, mm. you know, take a vacation for, for once. But it's, it's because these conversations are not happening People are treating themselves like machines with, you know, you could curse at a machine without consequence. So why not curse at yourself if you don't perform at 100%? Like the, 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 the popular ideas that are out there are so often detrimental to people. To, to me, the things I say are not shocking. The, to me, the, the, the things I say are, are, you know, just matters of fact, obvious matters of fact. The shocking bit is that the things I say strike the average person as new. Exactly. That's the shocking bit. It points to, to, to a sick society, not to sick individuals. The, the, the fact that I, I can say the same thing to 20 people gather together and 20 people get benefit from it, right? Mm -hmm. That means the issues I work with are not individual flaws in people. The issues I work with are problems with the world at large that happen to manifest within individuals. Mm -hmm. So like I'm talking about how, you know, we, we, we have to treat ourselves like human beings, not like we're machines, not, not like we're, you know, objects that could be abused. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of your listeners, they're like, well, now that makes sense. Right. But in an ideal world, I would not have any clients. I would not have any, any hmm. interviews because everyone thinks, well, Luke's just stating the obvious. Right. Of course, that's true. 
but and that's what it sounds like. Go ahead, go ahead. So, sorry, I, I missed what you said. No, I was just saying that's exactly what it sounds like when I hear you speak about hypnotism mindset. It sounds like obvious stuff. It's like, why didn't I think of that? How could I have not seen that before he said it? It's so simple. But that's that's why I do these interviews. That's why I have the TikTok channel. That's why I'm trying to be the best in the world. For better or for worse, I have to work within this capitalist world. And, and that means I, I've just got to expand my business, hire more yeah. people, work with more people, have more clients, and, and so on. Um, and then, you know, disseminate views that, that both help people and that get eyeballs on 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 the content. Right. Um, because everyone with a platform is going to share their thoughts and very few thoughts are perfectly neutral. Thoughts will be detrimental or beneficial and a lot of thoughts are detrimental. A lot of thoughts being talked about in the public sphere harm the people who believe in them. I, I endeavor only to speak thoughts and ideas that help the people who adopt them. The, the, the same kinds of thoughts and ideas that really good parents give to their children. Most of us did not have really good parents. So we have to like tune into TikTok or something. Straight up, In order man. to hear this kind of thing. But at least I want to be present at a place like TikTok saying these kinds of things to people who don't have the good fortune of having really good parents. Exactly. That's exactly why I wanted to talk to you and share what you have to say with the people listening because I say, man, it feels like I say that once a week. Like our cell phones really are the new parents of society. When you think about my generation, definitely, but the generation coming after Gen Z, like yeah. parents aren't talking to their kids, man. Parents aren't teaching them. Like they're not raising their kids to be independently thinking, productive members of society. Everybody, even the parents themselves, are just staring at the phone and hoping that the kids stay quiet long enough for them to enjoy their glass of wine after a shitty day at work. It's like, man, this is a problem. This, this is what gets me up in the morning. This is why I work six or seven day weeks and without burning out. It's because if only someone else would do what I'm doing, yeah. then I wouldn't have to do it. But no one else is doing it. So I, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to speak these ideas as publicly as I can. I'm going to work with, with my private clients who pay enough that the whole endeavor keeps itself going. Mm. And, you know, it's not just people spreading bad ideas that should have a voice. It's people spreading good ideas who, who should have a voice. So I definitely appreciate the opportunity to, to come here and, and speak to your listeners. But, but, you know, for anyone who's listening, you know, your words count, your thoughts count. If you tend to make a good impact on people when you speak to them, then maybe also consider joining a podcast or starting a podcast and maybe also consider helping to clean up public discourse with good ideas so it's not just the bad ones that spread the yeah. most like this, this, these tiktok challenges that have people stealing cars or like stuffing marshmallows in their mouths mm, uh, until yeah. they, they choke and i mean that's it's 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 um it's definitely not the world I imagined I'd be living in in, in the 1990s when I looked yeah. forward to 2023. I definitely imagined <laughs> robot servants and flying cars, oh, not Jesus. people being worse off because of technology. Yeah, man. Isn't that insane that we're actually, on the whole, we're, we're getting, I venture to say, a bit dumber, you know, a bit less critically thinking, you know, a bit less concerned. I, I, I think we're slowly but surely, like, our humanity is being eroded 
and we're allowing it to happen. We're choosing to let that happen. And you're one of the people, you know, doing what you can, doing what one man can do to, to help try to reverse that trend. I'm another person who's doing what I can to stem the tidal wave of BS yeah. that's polluting the, the, the public sphere. And earlier, we kind of talked about capitalism being the dominant ideology in the world and, you know, for, for better or for worse. And I would still rather live under capitalism than anything else. But it's because the, 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 the videos that have you stuff marshmallows in your mouth, they get the views, they get the advertising dollars. That's why those are the ones that rise up and yeah. not the ones that, you know, sincerely try to educate people. Yeah, it is unfortunate, right? And it's funny because before I understood a little bit better how things actually work and what you just explained, I used to think that maybe capitalism itself is the problem. And a lot of people think that capitalism is evil, it's it's destroying the world and things like that. And I don't necessarily agree with that anymore. I think there may be a handful of greedy capitalists who are making a bad name for capitalism itself. And I think those are two different things. But secondly, you also realize as an adult, I'm completely in control of what I consume. I don't have to be scrolling through this nonsense on TikTok or YouTube or Twitter. I choose to do that. And everything I choose to do, the algorithm learns to show me more of because it's learning that I like it. So every a lot of us complain about the quality of content, the nonsense online. It's like it's only present because somebody's engaging with it. Somebody likes this shit. And that's the issue. Not necessarily that they're serving it because based on the capitalistic model, they wouldn't serve it if they couldn't make money off of it. Nope. So it's kind of up to us to choose to listen and watch better things. And, and the first step is to at least, you know, throw th throw the pebble in the lake to start some ripple effects. Right. 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 It's it's what you and I are doing right here with this conversation. And the ripple effects will be people listening to this where the ideas we're talking about are going to influence them. They don't mm -hmm. have to be formally hypnotized, but these kinds of honest exchanges of, of, of good ideas when listened to are going to affect the listeners. And then they have husbands or wives and brothers and sisters and colleagues and classmates and friends. So they're going to be somewhat affected. Um, I mean, even something like capitalism, it's, it's, it's not how society was organized through all of human history. It's a fairly recent invention. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whatever happens next, I'm going to call it ethical capitalism. Because I'm actually basically okay with capitalism. I just don't like people who try to find loopholes where they extract value and they don't give value back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe yeah. the next phase is ethical capitalism where, you know, people who practice capitalism, they're adding to the world. They're adding their own creations to the world. They're improving the world because they act upon the world. And that's how they make their money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would hope... That's the future that we're going to see. I don't know if I have as much confidence in the idea, though, because, well, let me say I want to get your opinion on all these crazy advancements we're seeing with artificial intelligence, machine learning and things like that. Everybody's panicking, thinking that 60 percent of jobs will be replaced by robots and things like that. Even I'm curious to know from your perspective as a hypnotherapist, do you believe even if it's possible one day for a robot to do what you do, that people will prefer speaking to an artificially intelligent robot that sounds like a human as opposed to speaking to someone like you? I, I think that when cost gets taken into consideration, 
people will prefer the AI hypnotist. Mm. I, I do believe that. Yeah. I also believe that there is room for a small handful of practitioners to serve people like the president of the United States of America and, you know, like Elon Musk or anyone who have who has the means, yeah. just like artists have always had patrons over the years, right? Scientists have had funders over the years, hypnotists yeah. and other professionals, if they're world-class, they're, they're going to have their clients. It's everyone else, more than 60%. Right now, there's this rock star effect in the, hypno, in the hypnotherapy world where it's like you have your rock stars and then you have everyone else who's scraping by. Mm. There's going to be more of a discrepancy like that because my practice never gets full. This doesn't happen in psychotherapy because the best practitioners have waiting lists. So if okay. you want not to be on a waiting list, you find someone who's less experienced yeah. until you find someone. But there is this rock star effect where I can fill a room with 20 people and say the same thing to all 20 people, and they're going to get something from it. Mm. And probably better than, you know, like, like an AI can do at least at this point in time. Yeah. So I, I do think that AI will be tremendously disruptive to a lot of professions. I think that eventually someone is going to create an AI hypnotist. If, if any of your listeners um, is on that path, I will invest in your company. I want <laughs> to purchase equity in your company so that I'm on the right side of history, right? Yeah, right. This, the, 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 this, is, this is the game we're playing. We were all thrust into the game. We owe it to ourselves because we cannot choose another game unless Straight we move up. to Venezuela, which would be a dramatic dim diminishment in our quality of lives. We, we're not going to be in any game other than this one. So my strategy is to pursue preeminence and to mm. become the best in the world. Um, and perhaps to have an equity stake in any <laughs> AI hypnotist that might be invented. And I'm happy to offer, you know, all my guidance. I'm, I'm happy mm. to have a seat on the board or I'll be the person to, 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 to fund that myself. Mm. But unfortunately, it means that a lot of hypnotherapists are going to be put out of business. Yeah. And the, the thing is, if it's not me that funds it, someone else is going to. So I can't opt out of the game. I just have to play the game to the best of my ability. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but even the, the Sam Altman, um, the CEO of OpenAI, which created ChatGPT, I believe he has advocated for universal basic income really? as a way as a way not to have his head chopped off. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> when the AI revolution happens and people are coming for, 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 for the elite. Um, but, you know, th that, that's another possible motto. It's, if machines do everything for us, then we don't have to all work. And that could be better than the current system. It could be that, you know, machines do all the work. Elon Musk is still a multi-multi-billionaire <laughs> and he's going to keep doing that. And people work for fun. People make People write poetry or paint, um, but because machines handle everything, you know, we, we, we can all survive without, without jobs. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of like a techno-utopian vision of the world post-general <laughs> AI. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's either going to go to the utopian way or the dystopian way. We're not really sure yet. But this is clearly yeah. something that is going to make major changes. And for anybody listening who doesn't know, universal basic income 
the, the basic idea, the way I understand it, is due to the fact that so many things are being automated, so many things are being done by machines and people don't need to do those jobs anymore, but we still need to earn money to pay for things. The idea is that the government will pay each individual, I guess over the age of 18, a particular amount of monies that they can pay for basic living expenses, rent, food, etc. And then you can theoretically do whatever else you want with your time and the system will just keep functioning at least closely to the way we know it today. That's the idea for universal basic income because if everybody gets put out of a job and nobody's working or making money, that's a problem for everybody. So universal basic income is kind of like a proposed solution to that. And it does come with a lot of critics. People are saying that if you just give everyone money, then they have no incentive to go do stuff. Everybody will be fat, lazy, sitting on the couch, giving half their money to their subscriptions to Netflix and DoorDash and all these things. So, I mean, do you really, like realistically, just your personal opinion, believe that with universal basic income, we will see people flourish in their potential to do other things or maybe is kind of going to go to yeah, human nature I, where they just choose the path of least resistance i i can tell you that for myself at least i am still going to be hypnotizing people trying to be in public talking about ideal ways of thinking and it's not mm. gonna be being on your couch stuffing yourself full of doordash watching netflix yeah i would suggest that us human beings being the species that went to the moon and came back, being the species that built the pyramids and the Great Wall thousands of years ago, that we are going to be more fulfilled creating cool stuff yeah. than just sitting and consuming stuff that 100%. the robots have created. Yeah. So I know for myself, you know, like even if I don't have to work for a living, I'm still going to create cool stuff. And maybe I'll have more competition on TikTok and YouTube because <laughs> maybe... The, the only reason that other hypnotherapists are not creating content like mine is, is that they just have to make a living and maybe they have a hard enough time already. Mm. And, you know, yeah. so if they don't have to worry about that, but maybe they will be content creators on YouTube. And then there's more people saying the kinds of things that I say because, because of UBI. And, and that, that, that's the utopian vision. But yeah. I, I actually do believe that if people pursue happiness, they're still going to paint, they're still going to sing. They're still going to create and build. Some people will even build businesses because someone has to make the next generation of robots. They're, they're not just going to sit on the couch and consume. I think a lot of the sitting on the couch and consuming mm. comes from being absolutely drained, working for someone else to make them rich. It's very well said. I never really thought about it that way, but it's very well said. Like I just think about even my own parents or other adults that I know. That's really what it is. I remember my dad saying one time when I was a kid that he spent so much time just sitting on the couch watching TV after work on the weekends because it was something finally where he could just put it on and he wouldn't have to think about anything. He could just let yeah. the sound and the images kind of float in and he can zone out because he knows tomorrow, five o'clock in the morning, I'm up to repeat the grind. So it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, man. It's not even necessarily in some cases, that people want to just do nothing, but that's their only moment when they can do nothing because the rest of their time is spent doing shit they don't want to do. And that's the strongest argument for UBI, which is finally more human beings around the world can reach their full potential. Imagine how much more beautiful the world would be if people were happy every morning when they woke up. They didn't have to worry about buying groceries, paying the bills and insurance, feeding the kids, and they could just do what they want to do with their time. The world would be so much more beautiful and fulfilled people 
make for a richer, better life experience, right? That is the argument. That's the dream. That is the dream. <laughs> Whether it will realize itself, I guess, is way to be seen. But man, one more thing I want to ask you about Please. that I'm really curious to know is your thoughts on psychedelic therapy, because that is becoming much more popular in the States. And it's much more extreme than any other form of therapy we know, because we're talking about mind altering substances and being led through some kind of journey or trip by a professional who's going to help us achieve an outcome when you can't predict the effect that psychedelic drugs will have on a person. It just seems like it gets really tricky there. So what are your thoughts on this? So the altered state of consciousness and the guidance by a professional um, means that psychedelic therapy has those areas of overlap with hypnotherapy. And I actually am hopeful that the recent wave of research into psychedelic therapy will put a spotlight on hypnotherapy as a way to alter mm. consciousness and guide people through a controllable trip, but in a way that doesn't run the risk of a bad trip, like when you take a mushroom with mushrooms, certain yeah, molecules yeah. and you're hitting whatever neurotransmitters in whatever random ways. So... Psychedelic therapy also produces rapid results. And people have accepted that you do mushrooms two or three times, and for the next year, you're going to be feeling all right in a mm -hmm. lot of circumstances or, or in a lot of cases. People have a harder time believing that hypnotherapy after a few visits can cause you to have a better mood sustained long term. Right. And I think it's because people compare hypnotherapy with psychotherapy and not with psychedelic therapy. But if you compare hypnotherapy yeah. with psychedelic therapy instead of psychotherapy, the very short timelines make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. and the, the overlap is the altered state of consciousness, which is more dramatically altered with psychedelics or high enough doses of psychedelics. But still, it's an altered state of consciousness and there is sort of this emotional journey. It's just with psychedelics, it's your own consciousness taking you through um, the, the past or your deepest thoughts. With hypnotherapy, it is the practitioner leading you to mm -hmm. different places in your mind. But because the practitioner leads you with words, there is this controllable element to hypnotherapy that we don't see with psychedelics. Have you ever experimented with psychedelics in therapy or just recreationally? Well, I'll leave that question unanswered. <laughs> but I can tell you I am not opposed to the idea should it become legal. Well said. Perfectly understood. All right. Well, man, I really, really, really appreciate you coming to do this and speak about hypnotism. I really appreciate you putting out content online as well. Because like I said, you're the first person who's ever spoken about hypnotism in a way that's practical, in a way that makes sense, and in a way that makes me wonder if hypnotism could be the remedy for some of the things that I'm experiencing in my personal life or anybody else that might be listening when maybe psychotherapy or other ways that people try to self-medicate aren't the best option. So I really appreciate you doing this, man. It was great. And I, I definitely appreciate everything you're doing on your side for inviting me over here and for having a chance to speak to your listeners about everything I'm doing up here in Toronto. Awesome, man. So where can people find out more about you? What's the best place to find your content and stuff like that? Yeah, well, probably the best place to begin would be my TikTok channel or my YouTube channel, both at Morpheus Hypnosis. Um, you could also contact me through my company, the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis at www.morpheusclinic.com. 
If you're more of an Instagram person or a Twitter person, the handle is Morpheus Clinic. I'm, I'm sure Tony will include links in of the course. show notes. Um, but, but yes, feel free to reach out if if you have a a case that you think I might be able to help with. And I write treatment plans, at least at this point, um, for no cost. Awesome, man. Thanks again, Luke. I really appreciate it. All right, peace, y'all. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.